Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Friday edition, Pro Football Talk Live, NBCSN, Sirius XM 211, Sky Sports. Hello to our good friends in the UK and in Ireland. Hello again to Shireen Williams from her home with a much better Wi-Fi connection, overall technological setup than Sims has. Now, see, one of the factors, and I don't think this has been fully explored, I think some mornings Chris Sims' son gets up and plays video games and and eats into the bandwidth, and I think that's part of the problem. And I don't think Chris has figured that out yet, but I, I, I have a feeling that's one of the reasons why he's been having his issues, Shireen. Are we sure it's not Chris getting up and playing those games? <laughs> Maybe he's multitasking. Maybe during the breaks he's getting in a quick game of Fortnite uh, before we come back and talk some football. But we got some football to talk about. And, you know, we spent a lot of the first hour talking about the issue that really has commanded the attention of everyone over the past 18 days. And there still is another issue that has commanded the attention of everyone over the past three months and one day. It was just three months ago yesterday that the world turned upside down regarding the coronavirus. There's increasing evidence of some hotspots that are growing, cases increasing in various parts of the country. The NFL on Sunday sent out its initial protocols to the teams regarding all the things that must be done in a facility, in a stadium, to keep people, including players, at least six feet apart everywhere, up to and including the locker room. Now it all changes when they go out onto the football field. That's a different issue altogether. John Harbaugh, the Ravens coach, was on 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore on Thursday, and he provided a fairly candid assessment of what he thinks of the league's initial protocols. I've seen all the memos on that, and to be quite honest with you, it's impossible what they're asking us to do. Humanly impossible. So, you know, uh, we're going to do everything we can do. We're going we're gonna to space. We're going to have masks. But, you know, this is a communication sport. So we want to get out there and actually have any idea about what we're doing on the field. We've got to be able to communicate with each other in person. We have to well, practice and, 
I'm pretty sure the huddle's not going to be six feet spaced. So, you know, come right. on. So, right. so, you know, I don't, I don't know. Our guy's going to shower one at a time all day. Our guy's going to lift weights one at a time all day. Right. These are things the league and the PA needs to get a handle on and needs to get agreed with some common sense um, so we can operate in the 13-hour day in training camp that they're giving us to get our work done. So that's the one thing I, you can tell by my voice. Yeah. I'm a little frustrated with what I'm hearing there. Right. And, um, and I think they need to, they need to get that pinned down. Now, some would say that no one complains about the rules like John Harbaugh, but on this point, and, and on most points when he does complain, he's got a point. And there is a strange dichotomy with the extreme measures that are going to be taken in the facility, and that all goes out the window when it's time to go play football. I think the goal is to ensure that no one gets onto the field, into the huddle, into the fray who may be positive for the coronavirus, but it is going to create a, a major shift in the way football teams do business. And another thing Harbaugh said, Shireen, he's concerned that some teams won't follow the rules because it is going to be something that eats into efficiency and productivity. And if there are some teams out there that just cheat the rules, well, they're going to have an easier time getting to where they need to be come Sunday. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into this. And and we've seen it just out in public, right? You see people not wearing the mask because it's too much trouble. And now it's getting hot and they don't want the mask on and, and, and everything that goes with it. So we're just seeing these things out in public. So, yes, I think it's going to happen on some football teams. Some guys aren't going to wear masks and do some other things. And then we're going to start getting those positive tests. And, you know, I, I've asked around and, and talked to a few people within the league who, who have, have been in on these talks of designing these rules. And it will be interesting how many times that guys are tested. I don't think it's going to be every day. I think they're looking at what other leagues are doing. And I think it's probably going to be in the more two to three times a week that, that players get tested for the coronavirus. So it's very possible that you could have a guy test negative for it and then he comes back and he actually has it the next day or the day after and infects uh, several more players on the teams. But I also wonder if if some owners aren't going to go out and buy their own test, which could be highly possible. Robert Kraft or Jerry Jones just says, hey, I want my guys tested every day. I want to know when they walk in this building that they don't have the coronavirus, that they're not spreading it because there are only certain things you can do can do to prevent it. They're going to, to be within six feet, especially in locker rooms, especially in visiting locker rooms and, and out on the field. And I know Oakley's designing the face mask, the, the shields, and they're trying to do some other things, but let's be realistic about it. They're going to be within six feet of each other and probably be within six feet of each other in the locker room and, and around that building. See, to me, Shereen, I think it's a no-brainer that every player, everyone who goes into the facility must be tested on the way in and also test it on the way out in the event that someone catches the virus in the facility you don't want to be setting that person loose onto the community to spread it to their family and to whoever their family members interact with and so on and so on some of these guys have kids who are in school right if school is in session in some of the states where and and look the, the trend has moved sharply toward open everything up and we'll deal with the consequences later uh, if you've got schools open in the fall, as they they apparently will be, and and you've got 
kids who maybe catch the virus at home and take it to school. I mean, it's just going to contribute to the spread. So the NFL needs to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And being part of the solution means constantly monitoring your guys when they get there and when they leave. And the testing, I've been led to believe all along, the testing will be at the point where it will be easy and it will be cheap to do a screening test for the virus and get a quick result by the time we get to September. So I don't think two or three times a week is nearly good enough. I think you've got to clamp it down and test these guys multiple times per day, or at least multiple times when they come to the facility. On the day off, you don't need to test them, but maybe it'd be a good idea to monitor them even then. Because once it gets in, once it's in the building, once it's in the team, once it's on the field, there it goes. And for all the guys who are going to be of that mindset that I'm not worried about it. I've got bigger risks when I play football and I'm young and I'm healthy. There are plenty of guys who play football who are morbidly obese. There are plenty of guys that have a BMI that is off the charts. There are plenty of guys who have diabetes. I don't know how plenty, but there may be guys who have diabetes and don't know it. It's a hell of a way to find out you got diabetes because you get the coronavirus and COVID-19 kills you. You've got older coaches to worry about. I, I just, I, like, like so many other things, like we all took it seriously for a couple of months and then we realized taking it seriously was inconvenient and now we're back to like just kind of like, hey, well, let's see what happens. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that, that there needs to be, if, if you're going to have people in close quarters, there needs to be testing every day, Shereen, every single day. Yeah, we've seen these college teams come back and, and test their players and they have positive tests. We had a high school here in Texas that had a player test positive here in recent days, and they have, had started conditioning drills, and they've shut those down now at that school to try to prevent the spread. Guys are going to get the coronavirus. At some point, you're going to have guys test positive. Can you keep that number down? And I have asked that question, what is an acceptable number? Is it five players? Is it 10 players? Is it 20 players on a team? to the point where that team can't field a team anymore, a competitive team anymore, and has to shut it down. And, and I don't know what that number is, and I'm not sure they know what that number is, but they, they have to be prepared that, that this is going to happen. They are going to get the coronavirus, and they need to take all the precautions that they possibly can to keep as few people as they can from getting it. And they need to have full roster flexibility. If in 1987, when the players yes. went on strike, they were able to quickly fill out at the time 28 rosters with enough players to play games and not miss a beat, they need to be ready to do that as well. They need to have some sort of a device, some sort of a mechanism. And, you know, we've, we've had this conversation before, Shereen, about how the XFL had a ninth team of players that were kept in yeah. shape ready to go so you could sign players as needed off of that ninth roster if you were an XFL team. The NFL may need for every eight teams. They may need a roster, a separate roster that is maintained for that purpose so guys come in ready to go. You're not trying to get a guy up to speed who's been sitting on his couch for the last three weeks when the phone call came on Friday that they need him on the field on Sunday. All right, a couple of questions related to the coronavirus situation. Armor 84 at Twitter uh, asks this, with a restricted preseason training program, do you feel the benefit is with teams with minimal changes in playing staff or coaching staff? Obviously, teams with minimal amount of both would be better, but just out of the teams who have had major changes on one side of the ball or the other. So is if it's coaching or I guess the question is, from a continuity standpoint, is it is it easier to overcome new players? Is it easier to overcome new coaches? Well, when we go to pick our our prediction make our predictions mike i'm going to predict 
I'm going to pick all the teams that have the same coach, the same quarterback, and mostly the same roster. You know, you look at a team like the Kansas City Chiefs, the Baltimore Ravens, those types of teams that have that continuity. I think that's going to be even more important than it's ever been this year simply because they didn't get the offseason uh, that they would have gotten. A team like the Cincinnati Bengals with a new quarterback, good luck. You know, I just don't know that Joe Burrow is going to have enough time uh, to learn that offense, to learn his receivers. Once you get on the field, everything that, that they need to do in the shortened amount of time that they're going to have. A team with a new coach, a Ron Rivera, whoever it might be, I think they're going to have a harder time. Now, the Cowboys are keeping the same offensive system. They have the same offensive coordinator. They have the same play caller. They didn't change the terminology. Offensively, I think they're going to be okay. Defensively, I think they've got a big problem. So, yeah, I'm going to pick all those teams that have the same coach, the same quarterback particularly, and mostly the same roster. Yeah, and, and I think between one or the other, if I'm going to look at a team that has had you know pretty much the same roster but a brand-new coaching staff versus – the same coaching staff, but but a new roster. I, I I'm kind of leaning toward continuity of player because you know for the other players who were already there, it's easier to get everybody on the same page. And yes, things are changing at the top, but at least it's not a bunch of strangers who are in here and we're trying to figure it out. And the coaching staff's trying to figure out how these guys fit in. So uh, I think the more continuity on the roster, the better versus continuity on the coaching staff. But obviously, as you said, if you've got the same staff, the same quarterback, the same key players, it's going to be easier to pick up where you left off. And one thing that we could see get exposed here, how much time is wasted preparing for an NFL season? I mean, 2011, there wasn't an offseason program, and it wasn't a horrible season. And, and Jim Harbaugh came in in his first year as head coach of the 49ers and took the team to the brink of the Super Bowl. So maybe we don't need all this stuff that they do in April, May, and June. Maybe they are overdoing it. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what kind of shape guys are in when they show up. We'll see uh, how quickly they can get up to speed. I feel bad for the young guys who are trying to get the attention of coaches because their opportunities to do so necessarily are limited. But you know what? You feel better for the veterans. It's going to be harder to dump your veterans in mid-August, Shireen, when you haven't had a chance to see what the young guys can do and you're not ready to trust them. Yeah, no question about that. I think if you're coming in as an undrafted free agent, good luck to you. You're just not going to have a tough time, especially if there's a short preseason if you only have two games. And let's go back to the coronavirus thing with this. Why do we need 90 players right now? Normally you need 90 players because you wanted to play in that last preseason game. You have these preseason games. You don't want your starters to play. If you're only playing two preseason games, you don't need 90 guys because – most of those undrafted free agents aren't going to make your roster. You're not going to have enough time to see them. They're not going to learn the system, all of those types of things. I really think they should think about reducing the rosters, especially if they're going to two preseason games, just to reduce the number of people in those buildings for the coronavirus uh, as we move forward. But, you know, right now, 90 players, that's a lot of players for, for what they're trying to do, and those guys are going to have a tough time uh, making the roster anyway. Let me take it a step farther. What if you split the team up? What if you have the starters in one facility and all the backups somewhere else? And you look at, at Pittsburgh, for example, and I'd have to look through this team by team, but everybody's got to stay home for training camp this year. The Steelers are conducting training camp at Heinz Field because I guess they, they figure if we have to have all these protocols in place at Heinz Field, we may as well just do it there and practice there and train there and just stay out of our facility. 
But what if it makes more sense to have half your roster train and practice at Heinz Field and the other half trains and practices at your normal practice facility and you keep that firewall and you basically kind of semi-quarantine your roster? I hadn't thought of that before just now, but maybe there's some value in, in basically, you know, the guys who aren't going to make the team anyway, they're going to be the first ones you call if someone does test positive. Why not keep them walled off entirely from the starters so if there is an outbreak you still have this back half of the roster that uh, that doesn't have uh, an, an outbreak and a spread of the virus i think teams need to start thinking along those lines of when to disengage but still have guys who are in shape and who are practicing and are ready to go but get them away from your start and then to get and then to get, you separate your starting offense and your starting defense there's a lot of ways this can go Shireen, but it just demonstrates how how dire this can be for a team if there is an outbreak of the virus. Boy, they're going to have to think outside the box for sure. And, and it, your idea is great. Hadn't thought about that, but it'd almost be like a JV and a varsity uh, in high school and you're keeping them separated and they come together on Zoom meetings or however they they do that. And that's what they're used to doing right now, too. I think this virtual offseason has gone pretty well, as well as it could have gone for, for most teams. And so they just continue with that and have the two uh, separate facilities or however they, they're going to do it. But they are going to have to think out of the box uh, to keep this coronavirus at a minimum in a facility because it is going to get in there eventually. It's going to get in every team facility. We can say uh, with almost 100 percent certainty, somebody is going to get the coronavirus. Wanted to get to more of the questions. There's one other one I want to mention very briefly because I think it's an excellent question from at Chris and Hicks. It has never come up yet. What happens if officials test positive? What happens if if are there replacement referees are going to be available? What what what? what how, you know, we, the, the game officials are out there among the players. They're pulling them apart from time to time, and a lot of these folks are in the risk category from an age standpoint. So uh, that's another thing. See and. And people say, why are you raising all these questions? You don't want football to happen. No, we want football to happen. And we're raising these questions because we hope to hell that the people who are paid to put the sport on are raising these questions. Because, Shereen, one thing I've experienced, and Sims and I talked about this yesterday, every question you identify and answer leads to five more questions. And then you answer those. And they each lead to five more questions. And, and it is a big task to brainstorm, and we know the NFL historically not very good when it comes to proactive thought. They're far more reactive than proactive. This is a big job, and I want people to understand how big of a job it is, and I want them to appreciate it if the league pulls it off, but I hope the league does pull it off, and I hope people are asking these questions and thinking about these things and making the plans and not just saying, we'll figure it out as we go. Figure it out as we go. It's not going to work this year. Ho well, hopefully it will if that's what they do. Hopefully that's not what they do. All right. When we return, Dan Quinn participated in a peaceful protest over the weekend. He discussed that and more with Mike Tirico on Lunch Talk Live yesterday. You'll hear that interview next here on PFT Live. Falcons coach Dan Quinn appeared with Mike Tirico on yesterday's Lunch Talk Live. Quinn involved in a peaceful protest recently, discussed that and other issues with Tirico. We've got the entire interview for you here on PFT Live. Dan Quinn with Mike Tirico from Thursday. Well, there were protests around the country. There were a lot of marches, a lot of peaceful ones in the effort to end racial injustice. And Dan Quinn, the coach of the Falcons, joined with Thomas Dimitrov, the GM of the Falcons, and others in the organization, players, assistant coaches. It was a buckhead for Black Lives organized 
March, and the Falcons put it on their social media site there, and their head coach, Dan Quinn, joins us here. Dan, what was it like to be a part of that with a lot of people from your organization as well? Well, Mike, uh, number one, it's good to see you, and I would say it was really inspiring because the uh, the uh, so many diverse people uh, were there and who now are no longer accepting uh, things that they thought they couldn't change, but instead now are saying, uh, I'm going to be a part of that change and I'm no longer willing to accept things. So uh, it wasn't it was my first time, um, you know, in a protest or a march, but it certainly won't be my last. Every coach does a really good job of trying to rally their troops with their own personality. Uh, but we, we've had a lot of reasons, whether they were covering games or being around you guys, to see how you've tried to build a brotherhood, an organization, a togetherness within your team. So you've been kind of ground level with your team, with your team's players over the last few years. I'm curious if all of this really surprised you as much as I think it surprised a lot of the country, how painful that this has been for so many players in the National Football League. Well, I think uh, as coaches and, and oftentimes as leaders, Mike, when something's wrong, you just want to go fix it and you want to be involved. And so what we learned, and even from last Sunday night, getting on a call with 15 guys, I think what we really found was how incredibly important listening is. And so people were really hurting under the surface. And so knowing that, um, it wasn't into the, hey, what can we do? Let's you know take action right away. It was, man, I'm mad, I'm pissed, I'm angry, and I want to talk about it. And so the first part of the week was that, and we couldn't have been more impressed, Mike, um, with our mayor here, um, Keisha Bottoms, and the leadership she provided for our city. And I actually asked her to come on and speak with the team. I was so impressed. And so uh, moments like that to listen, um, I thought were the biggest lesson uh, in terms of, you know, now we can take some, some action for the change. Yeah, we saw everything that was going on in Atlanta and Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms' uh, speech, her impromptu four-minute speech as the violence was going on right there in the heart of town, CNN Center, College Football Hall of Fame, was so from the heart as a mom of African-American uh, young boys. Yep. It was really powerful. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that her message resonated even more because your players saw that. Hey, I want to ask you about your quarterback. You know, th this is a yep. sport. It's a league. It's an entertainment world that, uh, you know, QB1, as they're referred to, when they step up, people listen more. And with his words and actions and a half-million-dollar donation to a GoFundMe, uh, Matt Ryan really spoke up. What did that mean to the rest of the guys who are part of this Atlanta Falcons organization? Well, I think a few years ago, maybe in 2018, Mike, um, we as a team had spoken about, I wish you know, the world could see our locker room. And I think anybody who's been in team sports recognizes that space and how special it is and the connections are there. But I think what we recognized also is not all players and not all people have the same experiences when we leave the locker room and that's not okay. And uh, so I think Matt recognized that as well. And we both you know, had discussed it to say, hey, I support or it sounds hollow and we wanted to make sure uh, we could do more. And so having those moments where we could listen and having the moments where we could even connect further as a team, Mike, those were impactful. And I think there'll be more examples of this moving forward. Matt, Matt's certainly been a leader for everybody within that organization. I think we're seeing the value of that right now. I'm glad because I've enjoyed covering you. I'm glad I'm still talking to you as the head coach of the Falcons. It didn't look that way halfway through the season. 
and somehow you guys came out the back end of that with a football team that wouldn't die, wouldn't quit, finished seven and nine, finished really strong at the end of last year. What was it that kept everybody together, Dan? Well, I hope uh, maybe we can tie some of that together now, Mike. And uh, one of the things I've spoken you know, to the team about was good performance and unity are inseparable. And uh, we weren't as connected as we needed to be in the first half of the season. And we did find that connection that, uh, that you need to, you know, to play winning football in the second half. So um, let's make sure we never, you know, lose sight of that and connect to that because although the very best teams, you've got to be really strong in the locker room first. And so uh, to me, that's the number one lesson that I took off is that, you know, the performances and the unity, they go hand in hand. Six and two the last eight, winning the last four games. The Falcons ended up seven and nine. And this year, that may get you knocking on the edge of a wild card. Uh, the way the playoffs will change, adding another team. Somebody gets hot at the end of the year, uh, watch out. It could be a very different feel. So the plans are in place here. Get you guys back in the facility. Start bringing players back. I read through the protocols two nights ago, and there's a lot of stuff for people in the organization right. to do. How realistic that teams are going to be able to pull this off from your seat in your estimation? Well, I think uh, having moments like now, the, the staff's back here in the building, Mike, and going through some of those protocols and learning how to work together in a new way. If we wrote down all the things that we used to do three months ago and what we do now, I don't think those two lists would match. And um, so now mm. how can mm. we be the first space to go through it prior to players? We know they won't come back until training camp, but finding the guidelines, finding that flow that'll take place. Uh, think of meeting rooms and um, inside the building things, not out on the practice field for uh, you know how we normally interact, but uh, the physical distancing that could take place in meeting rooms, locker rooms, inside the building. But uh, I've got a lot of faith and hope uh, that we'll get it done and uh, come fall be a big part of uh, our country coming back together in uh, so many ways. So it's been virtual for so many different things, including, as you said, talking with your players and meeting with your players. And that may take away the individuality of growth in the offseason because there's a plan and a program for each player. It's not just one size fits all. How have you guys been able to bridge that gap to get specific? Here's what we need to do for you through a video yep. screen. Well, I think uh, two things, Mike. The, uh, you, you talked about the connection. I think the digital world uh, can make it challenging because our game, so much of it requires us to be present with one another. Uh, it's the on-field training. It's the, the work that you do together. It's the execution, you know, of a play that goes together and the practice for that. So the way we went about it is say, okay, how could we customize different programs for the entire team? In other words, if Mike, you were playing, okay, this is the one thing, Mike, we'd like you to improve on. Here's how we want to go attack it. Here's how we're going to measure it. And so, we made it almost a off-season customized by player. And we thought if we got better, you know, separately, when we do get our, our team collectively back together in practice to execute, that would make a big difference. And fortunately for here, us in Atlanta, we do have a lot of players uh, that live locally. And uh, there had to be some player coaching going on. You know, we talked about that as this started. And I'm really proud of the group uh, for what they've accomplished so far together without the coaches. And uh, that's been a big piece with leaders, like you said, with Matt, uh, you know, who definitely, you know, know how to lead the way, uh, know what we need to get done and are pushing to do that. Finally got Todd Gurley down there for the physical and that's all set that that's a big addition to your team. 
couple of good defensive additions with two top 50 picks in the draft. Uh, how different do you think this team might look on the field from what we saw at the end of a hot season last year? Well, I think uh, the identity piece, Mike, that comes you know to mind of what you want your team to play like. And so we don't get to really show that identity until we get into the games. But we want to be really clear about the style and attitude that we want to play, you know, running the ball and play pass and explosive uh, offensively, defensively, our ability to create more takeaways. That's certainly at the forefront of it. And adding players to that mix will be a big piece. So uh, the identity piece for us is a big one. We know a big part of that comes from our connection. And uh, through COVID, through the last two weeks of some really raw and meaningful conversations, I would say the development piece has happened and the connection, even though we're not together, that's also happened. Some talk of maybe two preseason games. That's there's been so many things floated out there. We don't know what anything's yeah. going to look like, but that's the conversation of the week. How would that impact what you try to do as a head coach? Well, I think you're right. Uh, we're turning into like a, a rapid response team to make sure when the, the moment comes, you're ready to adjust. And so, um, it seems like a long way off. So much has changed over the last, you know, two months that two months from now, I would expect uh, more change, you know, to take place and we'll adjust as needed. If, uh, if it does go into that space where it's two, uh, we know we're heading that way in the future. And so maybe this gives us a glimpse of that. I think from a coaching side, um, the games are one Mike, but you also want to know, okay, what's our lead up for, for practice time? Is it, two games with the same lead up that you had had if you had four, or is there more practice time right. uh, moving forward? So as a coach, that's where my head goes to right away. Um, whatever the guidelines are, we just adjust it where they're at. But uh, that would be one thing I'd, I'd like to know uh, where we still get the on field time together. Cause we haven't seen the rookies as well. I was looking outside at the practice field uh, cause I am finally back in my office and I'm excited <laughs> about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like there's a practice field out there just waiting. The grass is in perfect shape, I promise. When we spoke to uh, Sean McDermott, uh, he, he was sitting down, and he had a nice framed picture of his William & Mary days over his shoulder. And we talked about how he, Mike Tomlin, were there, and you were a GA, a, a grad assistant. And he said yep. you were different. The grad assistants would come through, but he always felt that you were different. You could see head coach quality. Did you see something different in Sean and Mike? Maybe not NFL head coach, but did you – see some stick out qualities of them when you were there? Yeah. And they were a couple of years apart. So Mike, I saw it instantly right. leader of the team, um, incredibly connected to the whole group. And so, um, I can remember, you know, Hey, we're going through a, you know, fraternity party. Okay. I'm right there. Well, I was only a year behind him. You know, I just gotten out of college myself. So sure. we had gotten connected and right. I knew that he wanted to coach. And so we actually coached our first, you know, that next year I went to VMI and, uh, mm -hmm we were in a staff meeting and somebody asked about uh, Bill Stewart, who was the coach asked about a receiver coach. And I brought up Mike's name and he said, the receiver from Wayne Mary. And I said, yeah, that's the one. And so I think uh, Mike came up for the interview and then was coaching spring ball by like three o'clock that afternoon. So he started in the morning and like <laughs> Stu wasn't letting him go home. It was like, yeah, you're hired. Here, what's your size? You know? So, and with Sean, um, <laughs> what, <laughs> what came about so strongly um, for him, he was a relentless competitor just in everything he did. You know, he's a sophomore safety, but you felt his presence. You felt his intent. You felt his connection. And so um, we, you know, saw that in him then. And then 
man, did it take off once he from Philadelphia to Carolina and on. So uh, we still keep up the three of us and always enjoy spending time together, whether it's at a league meeting or, you know, playing ball games. But uh, two guys that I think the world of. It's so cool. One-tenth, essentially, of the league's head coaches all together at William & Mary at the same time. It's, a, it's such a neat story. Glad things worked out. Glad that you get another shot at it here with the Falcons and uh, have a good team that you guys have put together here with you and Thomas Dimitrov and company in this uh, offseason. Dan, uh, thanks for the time. Stay healthy, and we look forward to hopefully running into you during the season. Yeah, no doubt, Mike. I look forward to it. Always enjoy spending time with you too, man. That was Dan Quinn with Mike Tirico. I love the reference to the late Bill Stewart. He would go on to be the head coach at West Virginia, the interim coach when the Mountaineers took down Oklahoma in the 2008 Fiesta Bowl. That leave no doubt speech gives you goosebumps, gives you chills every time you hear it. All right, coming up later today on Lunch Talk Live, Mike Milbury and various others, including Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M head coach. Shireen will be DVRing that one, watching it live, watching it again. <laughs> She's a big Aggie if you haven't heard, so she'll be checking that out. You should, too. We'll be back with more PFT Live right after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After all of the time that, you know, the years that have passed, um, I, I never received a phone call about, about it. I never talked to another head coach about it. I never talked to anybody about it until today. I got a phone call today. I'm gonna tell you who it was. But I got a phone call today in, in, in asking, inquiring about the situation. So I know, you know, somebody's interested, you know, and, and, uh, um, and, I, and he, you know, so we'll see what happens with that. I, I, th I thought that was, the irony of that was crazy because I know I'm coming on your press conference. You guys are gonna ask me a million questions about this today. I got a phone call today for the first time. Seahawks Peach, uh, Peach or Coach Pete Carroll. I'll get it right one of these times. Seahawks Coach Pete Carroll yesterday talking to reporters about a team calling because remember the Seahawks, the only team that brought Colin Kaepernick in for a visit three years ago. Somebody apparently doing a little homework, doing a little due diligence to see if they should continue to consider and ultimately pursue Colin Kaepernick. So today's draft, teams that should give Colin Kaepernick a shot. Shereen gets a shot at the trivia question. All right, Shereen, are you ready? Maybe. 
All right. Colin Kaepernick has played one game in his career against the Dallas Cowboys. One game. It was week one of the 2014 season. In that game, he threw two touchdown passes to the same person who caught the touchdown passes. Oh, I was the there for that game. I should know that, right? And the red light's on and Cindy Brady says, I don't know. <laughs> Who was it? Vernon Davis. Vernon Davis. Tight end. That's Vernon a great, Davis that's a good one. Pass. That's a good one, Matt. 21 to three was the lead by who in that game, Matt Casey? The Cowboys were up or the 49ers were up? The Niners were the, up. The 49ers. They won 28-17. Yeah. So uh, 2014 season, just a couple of years before his career with the team ended. All right, I get the first pick and I'm going to, I'm going to, Reiterate the team that I mentioned earlier this week in the aftermath of Al Sharpton, who delivered the eulogy at the George Floyd funeral in Houston, saying that the NFL needs to repair Colin Kaepernick. Houston, I looked at the Texans' depth chart. I looked at Deshaun Watson as the starter. I looked at the backup, A.J. McCarron. And remember, one of the false narratives we heard a couple of years ago was, well, Colin Kaepernick really doesn't fit as a backup because he doesn't match the skill set of the starter. It doesn't make sense to have him as the backup. Right? There are plenty of backups who don't match the skill set of the starter, including in Houston where A.J. McCarron is the backup to Deshaun Watson. Colin Kaepernick would be a much better backup to Deshaun Watson. Colin Kaepernick could come in and run the same offense Deshaun Watson runs. So for me, Choice number one, given the, the combination that George Floyd, born and raised in Houston, uh, the Texans could use him. And uh, given that there was kind of a rocky history a few years ago with some of the things that happened during the original anthem controversy, I think the Texans would make a ton of sense from a football standpoint and from just the broader standpoint of doing the right thing at the right time. So give me the Texans first, Shireen. Mike, they were num- my would have been my number one pick too for for all those same reasons. And Cal McNair and, and Bill O'Brien have been super supportive uh, of the Texans this time around. And and I think you're going to hear some different comments from Bill O'Brien coming up this week uh, weekend. From my good friend John McLean from the Houston Chronicle has talked to both of those guys, and I've talked to him. I talked to him last night, and and I think you're going to see a really good story on the way they've supported their players in this thing and the way they'll support them going forward. And it is going to be different in Houston. And so they would have been my number one pick I'm going to make with the second overall selection. I'm going to pick the Vikings. And and that's for some of the same reasons. Uh, George Floyd obviously died in Minneapolis. I think it would help with the healing process there uh, if you bring him in. Uh, They've committed to Kirk Cousins, so he's not going to be looking over his shoulder uh, at Colin Kaepernick. I think he's pretty secure that he's the starter there, so I think that helps. And again, when you look at their depth chart, you see Sean Mannion, some guy named Nate Stanley, some guy named Jake Browning. I mean, he would be an upgrade uh, on the backups they have there. So uh, Minnesota would be my first pick, second overall choice. Yeah, I like that one very much. And again, we mentioned earlier in the show the Gary Kubiak connection. Offensive coordinator now was the head coach in Denver when John Elway, the GM of the Broncos, considered trading for Colin Kaepernick before what was his final season with the 49ers. I'm going to go with the Baltimore Ravens here, and I know they have RG3, a backup who ostensibly matches the skill set of starter Lamar Jackson. I don't know, frankly, that RG3 is as good as Colin Kaepernick at his best, if you can get Colin Kaepernick to his best. But 
The Ravens were one of the teams that was interested in Kaepernick in 2017. They reportedly were close to bringing him in for a workout. There was something his girlfriend posted on social media that caused them to pull the plug. Ray Lewis eventually talked publicly about that. Look, now is the time to set aside that kind of stuff and not worry about that and worry about doing what's right. And I think it would be right for the Ravens to have a better alternative than RG3 as the backup to Lamar Jackson. When you have a quarterback who runs the ball from time to time, whether it's designed or whether it's a result of scrambling away from a pass rush, you're running the risk that he's going to get injured. Now, with Lamar Jackson, you got to catch him before you can actually hit him and potentially result in an injury. But I think Kaepernick would be a better backup option to RG3 for the Baltimore Ravens. And if we talk about this urgency, and it really struck me the way Al Sharpton put it, that Colin Kaepernick needs to be repaired. Part of the repair process is to go back and make things that went wrong right. And one of the things that went wrong was that decision by the Ravens to pull the plug on the workout because of something that his girlfriend posted on social media. Those aren't the considerations that a football team should have. It should be whether or not the guy is worthy of a job, whether or not the guy is worthy of a spot, whether or not the guy is good enough to make the team better. And and I think the Ravens in that regard would make plenty of sense, Shereen. Well, the next pick is pretty tough because there's so many choices. I just think there's a lot of good options out there uh, for Colin Kaepernick. But I think with my next choice, I think I'm going to go with the Kansas City Chiefs uh, because Andy Reid has never shown an aversion to giving a guy a second chance. He's done it with multiple players multiple times, uh, and this would be a good fit uh, for Colin Kaepernick to go in and, and to have time to, to learn the offense, to get back integrated in a program because he's been out of football so long. Patrick Mahomes obviously is the starter. He's not going to be replaced. Chad Henney's the backup. And let's not forget that rosters are going to be expanded. And you're going to probably carry three quarterbacks this year because of the threat of the coronavirus. He would fit perfectly there with Patrick Mahomes, same type of offense, Chad Henney, and then you keep Colin Kaepernick and you let him get integrated back into the NFL slowly. It just it makes a ton of sense uh, in Kansas City uh, to go with Andy Reid. You mentioned second chances, and it was Andy Reid who gave Mike Vick his second chance. And again, Vick was out for two years because of something he did. Kaepernick out for three years for reasons unrelated to any type of wrongdoing. He did something the NFL didn't like, and he suffered the consequence, and he's still suffering the consequence to this day. So, look, we talked earlier about the things Patrick Mahomes is doing, the actions he's taken. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Therefore, all we know, Patrick Mahomes and Tyron Matthew are constantly peppering Andy Reid with text messages to bring in Colin Kaepernick. We need to be the leaders here. We need to be the ones who do this. Somebody's going to do this. He makes the team better. I mean, look at what happened last year when Patrick Mahomes got injured. If Matt Moore doesn't come in and scrape together a couple of wins... They don't have a bye going into the playoffs. If they don't have a bye, how do they make it to the Super Bowl? How do they win the Super Bowl without the benefit of great backup quarterback play? So I, for, for football reasons and for these broader reasons of how we are going to behave in this moment, I think the Chiefs make a ton of sense. Right? I'm torn between two teams here with, with my pick, um, and I'm going to go – I'm going to go with the Patriots. I'm going to go with the Patriots. It was the Patri- It was down to the Patriots and another team. I'm going with the Patriots. Remember 2012, that Sunday night when Colin Kaepernick went to New England for the first time? 
the, the 49ers built a huge lead. He ran through and around the Patriots' defense. And then when the Patriots tied it up, what did he do? Cooley and calmly engineered a drive that won the game. And we've seen the Bill Belichick defense struggle with mobile quarterbacks from time to time. I think because it's so based on scheme, you know, when the scheme that is there for the play that's called breaks down because the play that was called morphs into backyard football, the players just can't keep up with a guy who is physically superior and can run around them and through them. And wouldn't that be a great weapon for the New England Patriots offense? I know that, that they're, they're, they're committed to next man up and what does Jarrett Stidham have? But Hey, Jarrett Stidham and Colin Kaepernick, all due respect to Brian Hoyer, is a better combination in my mind than Jarrett Stidham and Brian Hoyer. Yeah, and they were my pick, Mike. They were going to be my third pick. I think it's a great choice. They do need a starting quarterback. Um, but even if they don't, who's your third guy? Again, I think you're going to have to carry three quarterbacks, and I think he would be a perfect fit there as your third quarterback. And Bill Belichick, he's never cared what's been said outside the organization. Why would he care what's said if Colin Kaepernick comes in, if they sign him? So I think that's a great spot for Colin Kaepernick, and they would have been my third pick. And kind of like you now, I'm kind of torn. I have three teams on my list. I have the Cardinals, I have Washington, and I have the Seahawks. And I think I'm going to go with Washington simply because we talked about the mascot earlier in the show. It's a broader picture. And I think uh, from, from that standpoint, I think it would be a great signing for Washington to go out and sign Colin Kaepernick. I know they traded for Kyle Allen. And, and I know Ron Rivera likes Kyle Allen. The, the, the Aggie, the, I guess we can call him, we don't ever say ex-Aggie, but I guess we can call him ex-Aggie since he didn't finish his career there. But Colin Kaepernick's an upgrade on him. But again, even if, if, if Kyle Allen's your backup, Colin Kaepernick can be your third guy there. He's a lot like Dwayne Haskins. He can help Dwayne Haskins, which Dwayne Haskins is going to need a veteran presence. Kyle Allen isn't that guy to help Dwayne Haskins. He hasn't been in the league long enough. He can help him learn the offense because it's the same offense. But I think Colin Kaepernick could do good things for Dwayne Haskins. He could do good things for that organization as well. Steelers were the team that I was struggling with when it was between the Steelers and the Patriots because Mason Rudolph, Duck Hodges, all due respect, not Colin Kaepernick. All right, we got to take a break. When we uh, return, we're going we're to try to find a happy note, a positive note to wrap things up. We'll be back with more PFT Live right after this. All right, in the last minute or so that we have access to Cowboys expert Shereen Williams, I have a question for you, Shereen. What happens first? And this question comes from our coordinating producer, Matt Casey. Got to give him credit. It's a great question. Does Jerry Jones speak out about recent events, or do the Cowboys sign Dak Prescott to a long-term contract? What happens first? I think Dak's going to sign first. Uh, you, you start to think when they start training camp, if they start a week earlier than other teams, we don't know yet, but that'll be somewhere July 15th. They'll start camp, which means they probably need to sign Dak before July 15th. And I don't think Jerry starts till talking until training camp starts. I think we're going to have silence from him for the next six weeks. Actually, a very, very reasoned analytical approach based on the calendar, and it makes <laughs> sense. July 15 is the real deadline, though. That's the deadline for doing a long-term deal with a franchise tag player. That's when they signed Des Bryant when he was franchise tagged. That's when a lot of teams do it. That is the target, and if it doesn't get done by July 15, that's when things get even more interesting for the Cowboys and for Dak Prescott moving forward. We may not see him until just before week one. We'll see you on Monday, Shereen. 
Great as always. Check us out all weekend long at profootballtalk.com. See you soon. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.